Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Movie Brats Podcast. I am Carter and joining me as always is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing fine. How's your new year going? It is going... It is, the new decade is going well and later this month we are going to have some content to wrap up the year in the decade as far as best of lists go. But for now, the Golden Globes just happened this past Sunday and... <laughs> sort of wild stuff happened 1917 a movie that had not really been on my radar most of the year ends up winning best director and best drama and i'm gonna see that this week but i don't know what were just general reactions to the golden globe i know you said you watched uh just the opening monologue which really put a weird sort of spin on the whole evening and then a couple of the uh uh acceptance speeches but yeah what was your golden globe 2020 reactions yeah, I was driving home from Arkansas, and I was seeing which one of the movies we'll talk about in this episode, Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life. So I was in the theater for most of the day seeing that movie. Uh, but I did watch some of the clips of the Golden Globes. I mean, as always, the Golden Globes are completely ridiculous and mean virtually nothing because, honestly, there are there are very few people that actually vote on it. And, yes. I like mean, 70 people. Yeah, and it's you know sometimes there have been some times where they actually have nominated cool stuff that the Oscars don't, and partially it's because they split the categories. So sometimes there'll be nominees for best drama or you know best actress in a drama. They're like, oh, that's you know like uh, Rachel Weitz for The Deep Blue Sea a few years ago, which would have been my pick for best actress. So sometimes they actually do nominate cool stuff, but a lot of times they nominate. Like I remember one year they nominated Johnny Depp for The Tourist and. Alice in Wonderland in the same category, and you're like, Jesus Tom Christ. Cruise for Tropic Thunder, which is yes, a nice but, role, but like hardly awards yeah. worthy. Yeah, and it's and it wasn't even split in the best comedy or music; it was just yeah, supporting just actor. Supporting actor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Robert Downey Jr. did get nominated, but yeah, I it, it's one of those things where it's hard for me to comment because I haven't seen 1917, which is one of the massive nominees. But um, I feel bad the Irishman's not winning more. I feel like he didn't win anything. It did, yeah, and I, I I've heard people talking about since the Best Actor race at the Oscars is so competitive that Robert De Niro might not get nominated. He wasn't nominated for a BAFTA, was he? I don't uh, think he was. I, no, he was not. Yeah. I think part of that is that Robert De Niro doesn't do any glad handing and like promotion for campaigning, and other people like a Taron Egerton are very willing to do that. And so in that respect, he gets left out. But then, you know, people like uh, Adam but Driver what, and Joaquin he, Phoenix, you could hardly see doing that. But I guess that's just a testament to their performances and the public reaction to them, that they're just going to get nominated regardless. Right. Who were the five nominees for Best Actor for the BAFTAs? It was t- for the BAFTAs, uh, it was DiCaprio for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Adam Driver for Marriage Story, Taron Egerton for Rocket Man, Joaquin Phoenix for Joker, and Jonathan Price for The Two Popes, which is a role mostly in Spanish, which is not his native language, so a bit... I haven't seen the, that whole movie either, but Jonathan Price is very well-respected. And Taron Edgerton, I don't know, he might get nominated for an Oscar, but that would be very weird, because Rocket Man came out, like, a year ago, basically. I hardly think about it anymore. Yeah, it, it really will be interesting to see in the next few years how the changing makeup of the academy changes you would think with there being more international people more diversity that someone like antonio banderas Mm -hmm. would get his first nomination ever for pain and glory and that 
Lapita Nyong'o might get nominated for us, but then that has the problem of coming out way early in the year and it being a horror film. And I think most people think it's not as good as Get Out. But yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the front runners are definitely, uh, you know, nomination wise in many categories, 1917, The Irishman, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then it seems like in a lot of the categories, like every year, there's three or four of the five nominees that seem pretty locked. They seem pretty set. And it just will be that fourth and fifth slot, who it's who's it's going to be. But I mean, we've been talking before we went on Mike that there's a lot of our favorite films of the year that have, uh, you know, like zero chance of being nominated yeah. and things like Little Zoom Women, in. for example which well, got hardly any recognition from the Golden Globes and is one of my favorite movies of the year, and hopefully the Oscars give it a little more respect. But Little Women yeah. got disrespected by the Golden Globes, and I did not like that. <laughs> Don't you think it quite possibly could get nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Actress for uh, Sarah Sharonin? Oh, certainly, and I think it should be nominated for Supporting Actress for Florence Pugh and Best Director for uh, Greta Gerwig, but... You know, you can't get everything you want. It seems like the director ones, uh, four out of the five are, like, guaranteed for the Oscars. We were talking Bong Joon-ho. Seems like Parasite is just so well-respected that he's going to get one. Then Sam Mendes for 1917, which is just <laughs> apparently, like, the new juggernaut. And then Scorsese and Tarantino. And the fifth one is sort of up for grabs. And we were thinking it's probably going to be Todd Phillips for the Joker as much as we hate that. But the other two possibilities are Greta Gerwig or Noah Baumbach. But I would love to see Greta Gerwig be the fifth one out of those. Right. And there's a possibility that Pedro Almodovar, because they love film about film, uh, you know, films about films. And he's been nominated for Best Director before. And last year, two of the five nominees were foreign language films and black and white ones along with that. So they're if not we were to get a five of Tarantino, Scorsese, Bong Joon-ho, uh, Pedro Almodovar and Sam Mendes. That would be like four of like the five like best living filmmakers as far as Junho, uh, Almodovar, Scorsese, and Tarantino. So I'd love to see that, but that just means we're probably not going to see it. <laughs> oh, there's there's next to zero chance that this would ever happen, but I would love like if 89-year-old Jean-Luc Godard got nominated for the Image book, but there's literally no chance. In, like, I don't think anyone in the Academy has seen that movie except for like the most, you know, films. No, you probably know. like literally just like Scorsese. Maybe nobody no, I, else. Yeah, yeah. I, but um, I, I also would really like to see, like we were saying, The Souvenir is, uh, yes. we both really like that movie. That would be really cool to get nominated for. That's one that's been forgotten also. This is the trouble with the whole awards thing. If it comes out before November, no one remembers it even came out this year. Usually there's like one film each year, like the Grand Budapest Hotel or Get Out. The Hurt Locker, I remember, came out really early, which was shocking that it ended up winning Best Picture. I know. And uh, I just, you know, with the the Academy Award nominations come out really soon, don't yeah, they? Yeah, next like... Monday. The BAFTAs just came out today, which was another subject of interest in. Uh, we're talking Margot Robbie was nominated for two separate roles for Best Scar- Actress in a Supporting yeah. Role. Yeah, and, and Scarlett Scar- Johansson. But at least that's in two different categories. That's at least something that has happened before. <laughs> right. I remember that uh, Steven Soderbergh was nominated for Oscars for Best Director. Brockovich and a... Traffic, yeah. Right. Um I mean, he could do that again with <laughs> High Flying Bird in the Laundromat and accept yeah, High Flying Bird it wasn't the, the Saturn Awards. <laughs> yeah, but um, I do think that there are going to be 
I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with it. You know, a lot of my favorite films this year, The Irishman, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, are big Oscar contenders. But I, I do you think that Tarantino has a good shot of winning Best Director? I mean, that's always an award that's so random. Like uh, The Life of Pi won Best Director for Ang Lee one year. And it hardly ever seems to match up with Best Picture, which is really weird. Cause you a lot, that... lot more recently it hasn't. Spotlight and... Yeah. The Revenant and La La Land and Moonlight. Uh, yeah, I don't I, think Sam Mendes is going to win because I think because the Cinematographer Award exists for the Oscars that a lot of more people are going to give Roger Deakins credit for 1917 than Sam Mendes. So I don't know. I think it's probably Scorsese or Tarantino for a sort of Lifetime Achievement Award. But I don't know. I hope it's not Todd Phillips or something like that. I could see uh, Jun Bong Ho winning for Best Director and then The Irishman or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood winning Best Picture. Yes. I could see that happening. But, um, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I, you know, the, the awards are kind of silly, but... Uh, I, I still enjoy them. And it more than yeah. anything, it's important, like, for 25 years from now, someone looking back, oh, what were good movies of 2019? They look at the Oscars from that year. So, uh, in a lot of ways, it is, like... It's important not important about what movies end up being seen and which movies have like a bigger legacy. I mean, yeah. not as important as you would think because it's not like anyone actually looks up like the Oscars from 1977. And yeah, like, driving oh, Miss Daisy. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. not like Rocky holds it better than Annie Hall, but or Annie Hall won. Which one did Rocky win over? No, was it was. I think of the year Rocky, it was Network. Yes, yeah, Taxi Driver, Taxi Driver, and uh, it was like for. Like way, all-time way classic movies, and then Rocky wins. And, you know, Rocky has a nice legacy, but it is not Taxi Driver. But anyway, yeah. we can go from the awards talk to a movie that has gotten a decent amount of awards buzz, Bombshell, and is very likely to get at least the Best Actress nomination for Charlize Theron. Uh, it is directed by Jay Roach, who I know best for doing, like, uh, Will Ferrell comedies, like uh, The Campaign and other stuff like that. Starring Charlize Theron, Nicole Kidman... Margot Robbie and John Lithgow as Roger Ailes in a pretty interesting performance based on the true story of Roger Ailes departure from Fox News after multiple women, including Gretchen Carlson and Megyn Kelly, came forward to reveal to reveal Ailes's continuing sexual harassment of female employees. It was released wide in the U.S. on December 20th, a Metacritic score of 65 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 67 uh, bombshell. I just saw last week. What did you think of Bombshell, Jonathan? It was one of those... It reminded me in a way of Oliver Stone's film W, where it almost feels too soon. Uh, The people are so familiar to us, the way they look. And Charlize Theron does an amazing job of capturing the look and the voice of Megyn Kelly. But when you have someone playing Bill O'Reilly for just a few seconds, and then you see real footage of some of these people, it looks like this weird Saturday Night Live, like, wait, wait, this is a real person that we see all the time. And uh, I think that it has good performances, and that it does have uh, an important message, and it does have a power to it. But I felt like it didn't really have the impact that it should have. It does, you know, have an effect. But uh, it made me think of a movie like Black Klansman and even a movie that I had really mixed feelings on Vice. Like those movies felt really impactful and and, urgent. 
Yeah, and Bombshell felt like even though it it's so recent, this story talking about the you know the last presidential election with Trump and like all this stuff is happening just a few years ago, it almost feels. It, it has this weird paradox of being so recent that it feels almost too close, but at the same time, it doesn't feel urgent enough. You know what I'm saying? Oh, definitely. And if you wanted to be, like, really harsh, you could say that it's just sort of trying to ride the coattails of the Me Too movement and capitalize on an era, and that's why they wanted to get it out so quickly. And for me, it was a bit of a weird experience because I watched over the summer and very much enjoyed The Loudest Voice, which was a TV limited series about Roger Ailes' career starting from the inception of Fox News until his firing and death in which uh, Russell Crowe played Roger Ailes. So that version of the story was so much in the forefront of my mind that this one, uh, I just couldn't help but compare it with that one and think of the ways it was not The Loudest Voice. But more than anything, I thought the three tripartite main character thing of Charlize Theron as Megyn Kelly, Nicole Kidman as Gretchen Carlson, and Margot Robbie as a sort of composite character of, like, associate producers who have had uh, sexual harassment happen to them was, like, very mixed. And the messages of the movie were sort of mixed when it came to their relationships, especially between Megyn Kelly and Margot Robbie's character. And... I don't. I, it was just weird. It was a slightly confusing how it jumped back and forth, and there wasn't exactly a like reason for when they would jump back and forth. And it, the whole movie starts off with Meg and Kelly giving like a first person uh, description of the Fox News headquarters, and and then it kind of like drops that. for almost the whole rest of the yeah. movie. Yeah, <laughs> and it was just like, yeah. why did we do that? What was sort of the point of doing this? So it was a it was a confused sort of movie. Jay Roach, I don't exact, exactly think of as an auteur filmmaker, so yeah. I couldn't help but think that there was not like a, a vision behind the movie, and more than anything, it was like a studio movie where the director was sort of irrelevant. Uh, Charles Randolph wrote the screenplay, and he was one of the screenwriters of The Big Short, won an Oscar for it, along with Adam McKay, and it has the feeling of The Big Short or The Wolf of Wall Street early on, and you're kind of quick cutting between different characters and you're getting the lay of the land. Uh, but I, I don't know. I feel like this would have worked better as uh, a TV movie, possibly. I really like Jay Roach's uh, political films that I've seen that he did for HBO. He did Recount about the 2000 Recount, and he did Game Change. Game about, Change, yeah, uh, which is actually pretty good. Really yeah, good Julianne Moore performances, Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin, yeah. Um, it just... it. it it's like it's a really good TV movie, but a okay movie movie, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It it it, it you know. Well, it and just... it it really relied a lot on the like, oh look at Charlize Theron being Megyn Kelly, oh look at Nicole Kidman being Gretchen Carlson, and I think that the like, the uncanny valley sort of resemblance between Charlize Theron with all the makeup to make her look like Megyn Kelly, it sort of. It was more reliant on, like, the appearance than an actual, like, great performance. As much as I love Charlize Theron as an actor, like, I don't know. To be honest, I liked her better, better in Longshot than I liked her in this, which was, like, a sort of average romantic comedy. Well, it's also, it's one of those performances where you go, wow, this is a good performance, but you just don't 
buy into it completely like you're just watching a performance like and you get swept up into the film like you're 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 reminded it's a good performance like oh she's doing a very good job of doing the voice and the look and she's you know she's doing a good job but you don't just go with it you know what i'm saying it's like you notice that it's a a very well done performance yeah more of like an impression than an inhabiting of the character and maybe a lot of that has to do with the fact that mech and kelly is still so visible in public, you know, I had that big NBC today show thing. And the incident with Trump that sort of starts the movie is still pretty fresh in all of our minds. But I think we'd both be in agreement in saying that Margot Robbie is probably the most effective female performance in this movie. You could say maybe John Lithgow as Roger Ailes might be the best, but Margot Robbie, uh, we were saying nominated for a BAFTA for this performance, and I could see her being nominated for an Academy Award, however unlikely as that may seem, because she really is really good in this, and I think it's some of the best acting she's done since, like, The Wolf of Wall Street, because she's become, a, like, a star persona more than an actress recently, and I thought this was a, a really good performance from her. When she, since she's not really based on one specific person she doesn't have to have that baggage of oh she's looking or trying to talk exactly like a real person she's playing this partially fictitious character and this you know when i said the movie wasn't as impactful as it could be obviously we're both uh white men who don't have you know we've been put haven't been put in the situation but i thought the scene with her and uh, John Lithgow as Roger Ailes, the first scene, like that's really disturbing. Yes. And you understand how those dynamics happen. Like sometimes if you read those situations on paper, they, you just go like, well, why didn't she just walk out of the room? Mm-hmm. Like how, how could she get into the situation? But the film does a really good job of dramatizing how those situations happen and how you feel so vulnerable and how they kind of just go step by step by step until you've gone over the line more than you thought you would have. And I thought that that did a very effective job. So there well, are and steps. her and her relationship with the Kate McKinnon character did a really good job of sort of showing showing how someone can internalize that and the effect that has on somebody. That was definitely the most effective part of the movie. And Kate McKinnon, someone who I mostly know from SNL, sort of just played a version of herself, but I also thought she was very good in it as a lesbian producer for Fox News and the moral quandary that is associated with that. Their relationship in the movie was very good. Well, the thing that's interesting about the film is that it's this Me Too era movie about sexual harassment in an environment that's very right wing and conservative and Republican, where often these subjects are swept under the rug. But it proves that sexual harassment and abuse, it doesn't have a political viewpoint. You know, it affects, you know, they're. Uh, you know, they've there have been people in liberal media and there have been liberal movie stars and directors. I mean, Charlize Theron has not named liberal names. politicians. Said, Who is it? Al Franken, the senator? Right. Yeah. Well, OK, we don't need to get into him. But he, <laughs> what he did isn't nearly as bad. Oh, as I, know, I know. But I'm just saying it, yeah. it is it is beyond Anthony party Wiener. lines. Yeah. Anthony Weiner's gross. But um, I do think that. Uh, well, I was saying that Charlize Theron has mentioned in interviews that there is a big time Hollywood director that she had her own kind of uh, creepy uh, showing up at his house and he was in pajamas and he was propositioning her. And she said that when she was promoting the movie that she uh, did not want to name the name of the director because she thought it would take away from the film. But she said in the near future, she's going to name who it is. I wonder who it is. Part of me, I don't want to name anyone, but I, I have, I have theories about who it could be. Uh, but... well, I don't know. Is it a? Would you think that it's a director that she's worked with in the past, or someone that I... like a movie she might have worked on? 
No, it's it was when she first came to Hollywood, and it's someone that she did, never did a film with. But this director asked her to be in a movie years later, and she took the meeting. And he was she was there with his assistant, and she was like, "You remember that you did this to me? I'm not going to be in your new movie, asshole." And the guy kind of just brushed it off and like didn't even respond to her hardly. I don't want to say who I think in my. I mean, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I think that's sort of a good prescient reason for bombshell being made because the movie industry has a lot of similarities to the tv industry in that way where these men in power like a harvey weinstein or get away with a whole lot of stuff for a very long time and you couldn't help but think of of roger ailes as a sort of harvey weinstein stand in in some moments right and um i do think that john lithgow does a really good performance but he also has that thing of oh, i'm this big fat guy who's a blah, blah, blah. he's like job of the hut type and it, there's a little bit of like ooh, that's a really good those are really good uh prosthetics really good makeup job it, it's also the thing of like couldn't they just find a real fat person that was older and <laughs> but i think uh in most ways they do turn him into a monster and rightly so because roger ailes most certainly was a monster but the movie also did a really good job of him like actually being smart and showing that he actually was good at making tv so there's a reason why people listened to him and sort of obeyed what he said is because he's sort of like a domineering egotistical like mastermind of television and he's not just like a slobbering idiot like he's smart in some ways so oh, yeah, i thought that like... that got that across really well because it would be very easy to turn him into just a complete villain who's just like an idiot and you know but that's the scary thing about it is that these sort of people are not like the idiots that you would think they are that you know they're <laughs> in a lot of ways like other people but just hidden underneath they do terrible terrible things to people like margot robbie's character and other women and and people have talked about in real life they've had these experiences with him and then they will have pleasant exchanges through, with email or they, they would kind of put it aside partially in their mind or they would be like he megan kelly admits like he really helped my career like he was a really good producer and did all these really good things for my career but he also is, you know, this creepy pervert who sexually, you know, was mischievous. You know, it's like well, both it's also things like a be... psychopath who always thinks yeah. everyone's out to get him, which is a good thing they get across in this movie. Right. <laughs> Where like one of Roger Murdoch's or Rupert Murdoch, I can't ever remember his first name, son is like, you're being insane. I'm shutting this down. And that was a good thing they got across. And this is the tension between the Murdochs and Roger Ailes. But it has just expanded on so much better and the loudest voice miniseries over the summer, which I would recommend anyone to see over Bombshell, uh, even well, though loudest voice kind of slipped under the cracks. Do you think it matters? I don't think it does so much that uh, a man wrote the film and a man directed the film. Uh, I don't think that matters so much, but I do think that I think we're both maybe a little too auteur driven, but I feel like the film would have been better if there had been a more impactful, like the la I said before, Black Klansman was a very good film and then the last section of it made it a great film. And yes. there wasn't uh, this well, kind of- There was of one urgent... moment in the movie that I thought had a similar effect where they were mentioning women from before Fox News who had been harassed right. by uh, Roger Ailes. And it seemed like it was the actual women and that they were sort of telling their own stories. And that was the one moment I thought was really good. But too much of the movie did not have that same sort of energy. Yeah. Who would you have liked to have seen directed it? And you might have been more impactful or more urgent. Or well, I, don't, 
Mariel Heller, I'm starting to think, is like one of the best current working directors. So maybe I'd like to see what she would do. But uh, it definitely wouldn't have been as like pretty looking because the last two movies I've seen her make, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood and uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me, are a little more dour, muted sort of films. So it wouldn't have had... It 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 sort of wanted to be like Vice and stuff like that. So in a lot of ways, <laughs> I don't know if the director... This isn't like a director movie. This is like a studio movie. And I feel in a lot of ways, I feel like Charlize Theron had more control over the it. movie than yeah. Jay Roach did. Yeah, she was a producer and she brought it to Jay Roach because yeah. they were working on a TV project. And she was not even sure she wanted to play Megyn Kelly. She wanted to come on as a pro- – she was a producer. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, Nicole Kidman's uh, amazing, but it's also – uh, she's like almost a cameo in this movie, which is a little weird considering like the Gretchen. Well, I'd say, oh, that's, that's tough to say she's a cameo, but we don't no. see her interact with a lot of other characters the way you see uh, Charlize Theron and well, that's Margot partially Robbie. because she was really ostracized. Oh, from... I, I know, but it, it just it doesn't have the same. Her performance doesn't achieve the levels that the other ones do because she just does not have as much to do in this movie. Right, and it has a really great supporting cast. And Malcolm McDowell show up at the very end as Rupert Murdoch, and there's Connie Britton, and there's Mark Duplass, Stephen yes. Root, Amy Landecker. Mark Duplass, who like uh, suddenly just plays every husband in movies. I, I'm trying to think of other movies I've seen him in like that exact same role, but that just seems to be like he's the go-to, you know, cast a beautiful woman's normal-looking husband. Oh, let's do Mark Duplass. Right. Well, uh, so I. I I would recommend the film for the performances, but it didn't have quite the impact uh, that I felt like it should have. It, no, it it's felt... like a classic three and a half, three out of five for me. Right, yeah. So uh, let's talk about a, uh, another film based on a true story that's uh, very different in, in just about every but way. But in a lot of ways, more urgent feeling and yeah, yeah. has a message that drives much deeper. We are talking about... A Hidden Life, uh, directed by Terrence Malick, who all of a sudden seems to release movies at the pace of Woody Allen. Uh, it is starring August Deal, who audiences would most know from Inglorious Bastards, I think. Uh, the movie is about the life of Franz Jägerstatter, an Austrian farmer and devout Catholic who refused to fight for the Nazis in World War II and was persecuted for his nonviolent uh, beliefs. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival May 19th, 2019. We had to wait like a good six, seven months for this to be released on our shores. Uh, released in the U.S. December 13th, a Metacritic score of 79 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 83. I had the privilege of seeing this movie a couple months ago at a film festival and have been waiting to hear Jonathan's reaction to it. So the floor is yours. Uh, Hidden Life, Terrence Malick's most recent movie. Well, we're both extreme fans of Terrence Malick. We both were in a class where we watched his first five films. And I'm not someone who's like, oh, this is a major comeback since The Tree of Life. Because I actually really like Song to Song. I mean, I'm not crazy about all of his, what I call his trilogy of white A-list movie stars twirling in a field. Which all seem like the same movie. (laughs) Yeah, they feel like Dior commercials. But um I remember John Waters once said that those movies, they're like so pretentious that they rise to like the the pretentiousness is so great that they become great. Like they're like they're so kind of ridiculously pretentious. But uh, and The Hidden Life is it is very Malick. It is very Malick. It is undeniably a Terrence Malick film. And it's almost three hours long. 
but I went into the movie wanting that and it mm-hmm. delivered. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think it's overlong, but it's definitely a, a, a sit. Like you, like you, you gotta be in the it, right. It, it reasserts its theme in like a similar sort of scenes over and over for like a good hour. But that's part of the charm of the movie. You're like seeing, right. and that's part of the story. Cause I mean, he has his beliefs, and literally everybody in his life, like, except for his wife, is telling him, hey, you know, maybe you should change your mind. You know, the Nazis aren't so bad. And so, obviously, he would have that conversation over and over, and he, you know, sticks to his beliefs that this is an evil war fought by an evil government. And it's it's a very vital movie, and it's the most vital Malick has felt since, I think, Tree of Life, because as much as you say you like the previous three, there was a little bit of like an aimlessness to him. I feel like that oh, even he, I don't yeah. think he knew exactly what he was making the movies for. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I to say that it's his most narrative film since I would say the New World is <laughs> quite an understatement. Still, yeah, but the New World, even I mean, he's never really been a really strong narrative director. Not saying that narrative isn't important to him, but even it's his more... first movie, Badlands, which is like the most traditional movie he made is not exactly a traditional movie. And from that point on, he just like abandoned traditional narrative cinema. Right. He's more interested in the poetry and impressionistic qualities of cinema, how there'll be a scene where, you know, it's not two people sitting in a room. It's talking. It's the camera swooping around. It cuts to a different shot within the same scene a few seconds later. And the cameras have weird angles. And yeah, I mean, I have no problem. Like I respect someone being like, I can't, I can't do this. This is so boring and overlong and pretentious. And I get that it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I love Terrence Malick. So I am completely in the boat for watching him, you know, (laughs) go on and on for three hours and be, Uh, this is, yeah, this is a movie for like the, the Malick acolyte, but it, I think it is more accessible than, than most of his other ones. Yeah, which is saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, and I think yeah. a lot, a lot of that is that yeah, uh, a choice that surprised me because I did not expect it is that like a good portion of it is in English, which I yeah, really no did not expect title. going into it. Yeah, there's no subtitles in the movie. There are parts of it where there's people talking in foreign languages, but they don't have subtitles. Yeah, I think and... it's sort of like Austrians speak English, and then like German Nazis speak German, and. That was very effective because them speaking their like very harsh German, you are like, oh wow, these are like some harsh, different people whose you know right. mindset is different than mine. You almost get the spittle flying out in your face, yeah. But um, yeah, the film is very, it's very moving. It, I think it's one. I think it's his most emotionally uh, grounded and and engrossing film uh, since The Tree of Life, and I think that. It's a film that even though it took place, you know, in the late 30s and 40s, it's it's still it's sadly very relevant. And I think even more relevant, you know, he's been trying to make it for years and years. And it's just one of those movies where it seemed to come out when it needed to. You know, it's I mean, the film, it's hard not to think of watching it in America. It's hard not to think of comparisons to Trump, not that Trump necessarily is as evil as Hitler. We might be getting there, but it's it's, it's hard about not sticking to... to your beliefs despite societal pressures and like knowing that what is good is good and not accepting evil. Right, and uh, I do think that 
you know, the, he's a director who takes a long time to edit his movies. Like two of the main actors died since it came out. Oh. That's how long uh, it's it's been uh, in pre, uh, in post production. But I don't have a problem with Malik doing Malik. Like he he is doing what he wants to do, and I I think it's. Yeah, I mean, I if it's if it wouldn't make it quite into my top ten, it's still one of my favorite films of uh, 2019. I would say it's up there. Oh, definitely for me too. And I want to touch on uh, the title, A Hidden Life, uh, which for a really long time in this was Radigan. Known as Radigan, yeah, which is the name of the town that it's set in. But A Hidden Life seems to be a title he slapped on it pretty late and it takes uh the title comes from a quote by george Eliot from middlemarch one of my favorite books which really drives some sort of the point of him making the movie i'm just going to quote it right here <laughs> give you a little literary turn Spalik. uh for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs which is a very important message. And I think Malik said that he didn't even like know who this person Franz Jägerstatter was and that no one really did for like 50 years because obviously he was executed by the Nazis. <laughs> Spoiler for the end of the movie. But, uh, and then it's just sort of buried by history and that he's a very important historical figure who deserves to be known. And, you know, he made this movie so that we would know this person's story and the hidden lives of people like him would be represented by a really amazing Terrence Malick movie. And when I like saw that quote come up at the end of the movie, I was just like, wow, Terrence Malick made like a really amazing, like cohesive themed movie, which is not something that he usually does. Usually he doesn't tell you what his movies are about. He just gives you stuff and it's like, think about it yourself. So for him to like give us a message like that, I found very, very moving. Yeah, and the film is basically saying, I mean, the actor talked about it in interviews, the power of saying no, of resisting, and it shows that you might be a single person. This man was a simple farmer. He wasn't making, he wasn't trying to make some big political statement. No, it's not it like he's just, a great philosopher or anything. He's just a guy yeah. living in Austria. Yeah, and he's uh, doing it for very personal reasons, but the message of the movie is that saying no and resisting and standing your ground that it can have giant ramifications like it, it it can be powerful you can change the world a single person can change the world and that's a very powerful statement at this time when people feel very hopeless about the state of the world and politics that you know it's people that make a difference there might be this giant massive nazi regime and it might seem overwhelming but you the people have the choice they're the really people that can change uh the situation yeah how does this compare to, to jojo rabbit for you in terms of getting I that message really across just think, yeah i was <laughs> thinking i yeah i I don't hate hate Jojo Rabbit. Has it softened for you since you've seen it? I, it seems like a lot of people have sort of softened on it. No, it, I think it's it, – it, well, I thought it was interesting. You know, John Voight's this really right-wing, you know, Trump-loving – one of the few openly, you know, conservative – Trump conservative, yeah. yeah. And they asked him uh, – I saw on Twitter someone asked him what was his favorite film of last year. What did he like? And he said Jojo Rabbit, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> and then someone said, yeah, because you want to be friends with Hitler. Um, but uh, – <laughs> Yeah, I and but Mel Brooks really loved it too. I know. I was wondering what your opinion on that was, since you're such a what's, big Mel Brooks fan. What's like we're going before we turn the mics on? We were talking about Quentin Tarantino. Uh, you know, 
they you can have artists you really respect, but you don't have to respect every <laughs> choice they uh, of things they like. Uh, you know, it's like Ingmar Bergman thought that Citizen Kane was a bad movie, and he criticized it and said it was boring. And you know, he's wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like you can be a brilliant director and and have odd like Stephen King. I love, but he has some really questionable taste in horror movies. Like saying the remake of The Last House on the Left was as good as Silence of the Lambs, you know? No, that is a wild take. But yeah. any any uh, criticisms of A Hidden Life? My one would be it is a little too long. Yeah, I mean... But, but I, for people like us, that's not really a criticism because we just sort of want to luxuriate in the world of Terrence Malick. But this being a sort of statement movie, maybe make it a little more consumable for the average person. There, there is maybe a little bit too much of people wandering in fields and shearing, you know, sheep and <laughs> and uh, you know. But I, I do think that uh, someone there's... posted on Twitter like this has been a huge year for shots of people standing next to windows, and there were like four shots of a hidden life. <laughs> yeah, well, the uh, the one thing the film does is it shows the the way the prison is like a cathedral, like a church. There's these comparisons between you know the light coming in, little shafts of light. Uh, so that's that's very moving. But sometimes he'll make a point and he'll do it again. He'll do it again. And he'll do it for like 20 minutes. Okay, Terry, we get it. Like, you know, it's yeah. very. This all comes it, from a place of love. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it, it it is like stunningly gorgeous, like yes. sound of music, like the nature and the hills. And yes. it's just like. Some it, of the shots it, of, of his home in the mountains of Austria are absolutely stunning. And more yeah. than anything, uh, Terrence Malick. Different cinematographer than he usually uses, which has been Emmanuel Lubezki, I think, consistently since the New World. Uh, this time it was Jorg Windmer, whose work I'm not familiar with. But more than anything, you go to a Terrence Malick movie to just see absolutely gorgeous shots of nature. And he delivered <laughs> for like two hours of the three-hour movie or just amazing shots of nature. Right. Uh, it is disappointing to me. I, I saw some tweet by a prominent film critic saying that there are not a lot of theater showing this because uh disney has fox and of course they want to show frozen 2 and the new star wars is in as many theaters as they can so i had to see it in atlanta on my drive home uh and it's not play- hasn't played anywhere in the upstate in south carolina is it is it playing anywhere near you it is, is playing it- in the, in the really small theater with like 50 seats in it near me yeah, and you want to see this one on the biggest screen possible. You know, this is not. No, this is for sure would be a movie you're going to stop watching if you watch it at home. You're going to be like, I think I get it. Yeah, yeah. It's it, This is a movie that is like the worst for a screener. Like, this is, film's not going to get nominated for any Oscars, I don't think. No. Uh, it's Maybe just, cinematography, but that's it. Yeah, it's not going to. Yeah, it, just nobody. Uh, we were talking about before we started recording, like. Who wants to see this movie these days? Like we do, but I feel like there's like 200. <laughs> this is 200... like a great movie for like teachers making their kids watch it. This is like gonna yeah. be like a great educational movie in years on. Yeah, it's like someone can spend a whole week of uh, <laughs> of class, uh, yeah. you know, showing this <laughs> three almost three hour movie. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we're we're kidding this movie somewhat, but like I I really like it. I'd give it like four and a half four and a half out of five probably. No, ex- as far as Malik goes, any movie he makes, I'm going to absolutely love. And this is my favorite since uh, The Tree of Life, which is uh, my favorite movie of this decade. We'll have our full list coming out later. but So that's like saying my favorite since that is, you know, not saying a whole lot. But it's, you know, it's a top five Malik movie. And he hasn't made that many movies, but he has an amazing, you know, 
filmography of movies. Uh, so yeah, four and a half out of five or five. It's hard to rate Malick movies like you would others. You know what I mean? Yeah. You just have to get on this wavelength. Like I've <laughs> yeah. said, I, I understand people. You just, sort of accept it or you don't. Yeah. It's tough yeah. to be like, you might like it because this isn't a movie yeah. you have sort of mixed opinions about. There was an older couple that were sitting in front of me in the theater and pretty early in the movie, one of them turned to the other and said, slow. <laughs> slow. That's all they said. And it's like. You just got to you got to get on its way. I mean, it, especially his previous three films, you really have to like go with it, or mm-hmm. you're just gonna, you know. And I, I I respect people that don't have the patience, you know. But uh, if you give yourself over, I found this film very moving, and 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 like the other three, you said could feel kind of aimless. This film felt important. It felt mm-hmm. urgent. It felt like there was an, uh, a purpose for him making it, and specifically now. Oh, definitely. And now we are just going to briefly touch on I'm going to try and keep these. I'm going to time these. We're going to try and keep these under five minutes. Uh, we can do seven and a half minutes each. Uh, <laughs> we're going to start with Uncut Gems, the latest movie from Josh and Benny Softy, who released Good Time a few years ago, which was a really big hit. Uh, originally released August 30th at the Telluride Film Festival. Wide released December 13th. Uh, it is about a gambling addict who... Goes through a whole lot of crazy stuff involving Kevin Garnett to try and pay off his loan sharks. This is a tough movie to describe, and I'm seeing it as a movie that has a real divide over like audience scores and critic scores. Consistently, it's like 90 for critic, and I'm seeing like a lot of ones and twos for audience scores. Uh, what did you think of Uncut Chips? I wonder how much of it is people go, oh, Adam Sandler, and this is not an Adam Sandler. I mean, Adam Sandler's in the film, and it's arguably his best performance ever, along with Punch Drunk Love. But I've heard people say this movie is like a two-hour and 15-minute panic attack. Like, it's not (laughs) a fun movie in the typical way. Like, it's very intense and nerve-wracking. And uh, I've heard you were saying it's hard to describe. I saw someone describe it. It's like Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets meets the Coen Brothers' A Serious Man. I don't know, that's <laughs> no, a pretty, that's good, pretty uh, decent description, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a very Jewish film, uh, New York. Very crime. New York movie. Yeah, and it, one thing it does that I think too many films and TV shows don't do these days is that there's so many ugly, weird-looking people in it. Like, I love the faces <laughs> in the film. It's like not since Sam Peckinpah has there been all these great supporting characters where you're like, is that an, even an actor? Some of them aren't actors. Some of mm-hmm. them are just people that uh, – No, I heard was... like one guy, uh, Josh Softy, was like in a casino at 3 in the morning and was like, hey, you want to be in our movie tomorrow? And the guy's like, I don't know. He's acting hard. And he was like, nah, you can do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, I mean, Adam Sandler just completely transforms himself. He is just – he, he he looks different. He talks different. He and, plays yeah, like an unlikable person, which is very – weird for adam sandler because in so many movies he's literally just playing adam sandler likable make everyone laugh kind of guy but he's just like a despicable human being in uncut gyms he's a gambling addict cheating on his wife you're just and it's i think that's sort of what i come out from is safety movies this one uh i haven't seen too many other ones but good time with robert pattinson (laughs) their movies just have unlikable protagonists they just make movies about like despicable people but I'll say this though, yes, the character is very despicable, but he's he has um, a charming quality to him in a weird way. Like mm-hmm. you, 
you you care about his struggles and his the whole movie you you get so irritated with him because of the choices he makes he's a gambling addict and you just go no no don't don't do that they just take the money and you do like you 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 have sympathy for him even though he does makes these horrible well, that's, decisions that's part of the brilliance of the adam Sandler performance it is such a line that he is tipping because if he if he was totally unlikable like there'd be no point in watching this movie you'd just be like i I get it like this is an asshole doing asshole things i'm just going to turn it off but yeah there is sort of like a weird must watch sort of charisma to his character and it's just not a person i would ever like want to talk to in real life (laughs) but i'm interested in watching him on screen for two hours yeah it's it's like this fast slash slow moving car accident happening for two hours and 15 minutes where you're, you can't look away. Like you're, you're just like, Oh no, no, don't. And you're just so on the edge of your seat. Now this shows you how ignorant I am of sports. I had no idea who Kevin Garnett was before this film. If you had asked me what, if he was a real sports person or what sport he played, I would have had no idea. I don't so, know how. So yeah. It, how did how, that work for you though? Cause a lot of it is based on uh, sort of minutia of betting, like a big plot element of the movie is that he needs Kevin Garnett to get a certain number of points, rebounds and blocks. Like, did that just go totally over your head or were you like somewhat into what was happening? Well, it's one of those examples of a film where, the specific subject matter I have no real interest in, but like a first the man kind of char- well, the characters and the their their drive and their passion and obsession, like that's what makes you interested. It's like the, you know, they're you're going through the character. That's what makes it interesting. And he's such a fascinating character. And I just love that such a eclectic supporting cast. You have the weekend playing himself. You have yeah. Eric Bogosian and you have uh, a really Adina good Lakeith Duff. Stanfield. Yeah. And Judd Hirsch from taxi. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even realize that was him until after the credit, like that was the one he was playing. You know, he's like almost 85 now. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, I, I was really impressed with this movie. I think I like good time a little more. Um, that movie is a little more lean and I mean, both of them are really kind of oppressive, you know, like they're not exactly fun movies. No, but they're, they're exhilarating. I would say that they're, they're kind of breathtaking and there's such a rush of adrenaline and it just puts you in a different sort of mindset than most movies do. But one, uh, one thing I heard apparently I, this is like I didn't hear the Softy Brothers say it, but someone like quoted Softy Brothers as saying this: that Uncut Gems is like a ninety-minute movie that they made into a two-hour and fifteen-minute movie. And I was thinking, like, maybe it would have been better as a ninety-minute movie. <laughs> maybe no, you should have done I, that. I think it's one of those movies like Wolf of Wall Street. Like it needed to be sort long. of bloated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it had to go over the, you know, I, I, I do think that it also has this, you know, it, it has this really interesting mix of being very gritty and on the street and minute to minute and time, uh, but also has this cosmic element to it. You start in Africa, like, you know, almost mm-hmm. like the exorcist, like you're watching them dig in some uh, archaeological dig, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're digging for gems and, and they go into the gym and then ends up being his colonoscopy. Like there's this kind of, there's this trippy quality to it too. Yeah. I just thought it was incredibly well directed and, uh, it would be very cool if they got nominated for best director, but I, I just feel like, I feel like it's one of those films that the people that like it really, really like it. And then a bunch of people would just not even finish the movie or want it or not. Or just absolutely hate it because the ending is a little bit shocking and not exactly what you expect from an Adam Sandler movie. 
Don't want to spoil I, too much. I wasn't surprised. Yeah, I wasn't sur- too well, shocked. I mean, yeah. shock. I, it's a shocking moment, but I wasn't shocked that it ended. You know, not okay. We won't, we won't say anymore. We won't. We was, both would recommend that one, though. Sort of what it oh, comes yeah. down to. But yeah. a, another movie released earlier in December to sort of wrap up our December deep drive is Marriage Story, uh, written, directed, and produced by Noah Baumbach. Uh, it was released on Netflix December sixth, starring Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. It is a autobiographical movie about the uh, unraveling of the marriage of a couple going through a coast-to-coast divorce between Los Angeles and New York. Uh, I watched this movie on Netflix. I did not get to see it in a theater because the showtimes for it became so weird when it started being released on Netflix, which is one of those things I hate. Like how The Irishman continued being in theaters, but it was at like one showtime at 10 o'clock at night. (laughs) That's basically how Marriage Story was. So I had no choice but to watch it on Netflix. And despite uh, us both being big proponents of going to see a movie in a theater, I saw this uh, on a TV at my house, and I could not help but love this movie, despite it being encumbered by the viewing settings I watched it in. You, I'm pretty sure, saw it in a theater. What did you think of Marriage Story? Oh, it's in my top ten of last year. I saw it uh, in a theater in Asheville. It wasn't a huge theater, but... Yeah, I mean, I've always been a fan of Noah Baumbach. Uh, I especially like Greenberg and The Squid and the Whale. But yeah, this, this movie... felt like his biggest movie in maybe ever. Because a lot of his are very focused sort of stories about like a really idiosyncratic character and not really about sort of grand themes or anything like that. This definitely felt like his biggest sort of statement and scope of a movie. And Called his magnum opus. <laughs> Did he call it that? Or I, I mean, I would call it that. Good. Because yeah, I, I this mean, is my favorite movie by him, and I'm a big fan of Noah Baumbach. I'd probably say my favorite movie of his is Kicking and Screaming, which may not be his first movie, but it is yeah, definitely it's... pretty early on. It yeah. is his first movie, yeah. So, I, <laughs> I mean, that's his first movie, and I think that this, his most recent movie, is his best. And until now, I thought it was his first movie, so it's good to see him finally progressing in his career. <laughs> Well, it's a lot of, and this isn't a criticism, but a lot of his earlier movies could be kind of cynical and um, I don't know if mean spirited is the word, but they could be kind of uh, like I remember when Greenberg came out, which is actually one of my favorite of his. There are actually signs outside of some of the theaters saying, like, I think people, some people are expecting like a dodgeball, meet the Fockers, Ben Stiller comedy, and they were like, this is an art house comedy drama, and you know, you will not get a refund if you see this movie. Like, they were actually warning people. So some of his movies could be a little, uh, the characters could be unlocked. Sort of mumblecore kind of movies. Yeah, Margo at the the Wedding, which I saw uh, a few weeks before Marriage Story, that's a really uh, kind of nasty movie. I really liked it, but Marriage Story is, I think, his most humane movie. It's really beautifully written beautifully acted i mean it's one of those films where every aspect of the filmmaking is just at at the absolute top level i mean i think adam driver you know does great movie after great movie but this is one of his best performances ever scratcher hansen who i think is an underrated actress i mean she does all those avengers movies but she actually makes really interesting film choices from her to ghost world to under the skin you know she does some real and i think she's really good in this when this one sort of purposefully takes away her like starlet persona like she's got short hair and doesn't wear makeup for most of the movie so in a lot of ways it's like self-conscious about her taking that 
uh, Starlet sort of persona away, but she's like incredibly raw and emotional in the movie. There's a really extended like seven, eight minute soliloquy she gives to Laura Dern's uh, divorce, Laura, <laughs> divorce lawyer character sort of about her views on their marriage. And it's just like an absolutely stunning six, seven minutes of acting, um, which I, th- yeah. I think we've mentioned Renelli Zellweger is like definitely going to win the Oscar for Judy, but I would really love it, love it if Scarlett Johansson won it for this movie because she's just outstanding. Yeah, it's certainly one of the best performances she's given. I also, we should mention there's so many good supporting performances. The three different lawyers, there's Laura Dern, who seems like the front runner to win Best Supporting Actress. She's also in Little Women uh, from last year. But uh, there's also Ray Liotta. Who's a perfect scumbag lawyer. Absolutely perfect. Right. And then Alan Alda playing this kind of uh, low rate human uh you know there's you know you see him go into the room uh into the kitchen to heat something up in the microwave but he's you know that all three are perfectly cast as different types of lawyers and i just love how the you know it's a it's a love story told through a divorce it shows you how they still have a lot of love for each other but their marriage just is not working and how and 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 i would say it's more of a drama than a comedy yeah. but there are some very funny moments i love the 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 tension between new york and la it's it reminds me of like woody allen and annie hall uh, there's yeah. in a lot of ways tension. it does feel like a woody allen movie oh yeah i mean noah bombach's always you know there woody allen has to be one of his major influences but i just think that there's so many little moments in the movie that feel so human and real and clever. And I, yeah, I, I think this movie is just, you know, I understand how some people go, Oh, it's, you know, white, you know, movie stars, yes. you know, these people like oh, rich people problems? having rich people problems. <laughs> yeah. And they're not really rich, rich people, but it's, you know, but I, I've never had a problem you know, e- even a movie like Sofia Coppola's somewhere, like, I don't care if it's like a rich movie star who's like just bumming around. Has, you know, like, well, if it's, it's well a, done, like, you know, I don't really care <laughs> what yeah. the background of the main character is. It could be, you know, some it's random kid in India or it could be, you know, a child actor movie star who's trying to make it in Broadway like Scarlett Johansson's character in this movie. Like, if it's well done, I'm going to like it. And this movie is exceptionally well done. And I have to, like, uh, mention this is getting. And a lot of stuff I hear about this movie, this is getting mentioned, but I just want to mention it myself. Randy Newman's score for it is absolutely incredible, and I would not be surprised if that won the Oscar for Best Score. Well, um, I do think that this is a funny thing I've heard. Um, I wonder how much of its Oscar chances might be hurt by the fact I've heard rumblings, like people that go to these meetings, you know, these lunches, and they say that people go, yeah, it's a really good movie, but it was so hard for me to watch because it reminded me of my divorce. And like, I'm not going to vote for Scarlett Johansson because it reminded me way too much of what I went through with my wife. I wonder if how much of that would really affect, like if some, I mean, it's not like, you know, surviving World War One, like 1917, that's grueling, but yeah, exactly. some people marriage story would be even more grueling. <laughs> well, and a lot of people I think might be a little, uh, apprehensive going into this movie like is it going to be really depressing like is it going to make me hate my spouse and there's like 45 minutes left in the movie like half hour left in the movie you're like oh wow this is really really bleak but the last three scenes wrap up the the movie in a really heartfelt hopeful sort of way that maybe you wouldn't expect going into a movie about divorce but however 
do you ever do you ever walk out of a movie and there's older people in the theater and they're talking about it? I heard uh, this older couple saying, "I think the movie is saying that they're going to get together again." I'm like, "No, they're not. Like, <laughs> no, that's I don't so, think so yeah. <laughs> no, 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 they're not going to get back together, but they're they're going to be there in each other's lives. Yeah, they'll both to- be at there for their kids' graduation, which is not what you can say about all divorced couples. It was like yeah. amicable terms, which is uh, you know a good thing." For the end, of the, I know that's not too much of a spoiler to say that yeah. they don't end up together. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, you know it's called Marriage Story, but it's obvious that it's a film about divorce. But yeah, I yeah, it's it's beauty. It's shot on film. It's beautifully made. It's weird yeah, Netflix it's, movie though. Huh? Yeah, well, I, Just I like the whole subject movie. matter and everything like that. It is not like a oh, night staying in. Let's watch a divorce drama. <laughs> if it weren't for the lead actors and the writer director this move if it was on netflix it would be like dumped and no one would be well not that no one would be talking about it but it would have a lot less yeah. you know oscar chances and oh definitely uh, which yeah. i'm starting to doubt how much it really has it seemed like it was going to be a juggernaut when it came out but i don't know it seems like the two what just seemed like classics once upon a time in hollywood and the irishman and then 1917 which is like the new darling they just like have totally taken all the buzz away from it it's going to be one of those that's going to be nominated for like eight Oscars and Laura Dern's only going to win. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be nominated for best picture and screenplay. screenplay after, yeah. Score. score. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what film's going to get the most nominations? Uh, probably the Irishman. The Irishman. Uh, three acting nominations, best picture, best director. You know what movie's going to get a lot of tentacle uh, nominations as far as like costume design and stuff like that goes is Little Women. It's definitely going to get like a costume, maybe production, maybe editing, because it is a really well edited movie. But well, uh, we're going to a... wait to talk more about that until you see it. But I, I cannot wait till we can talk a little more about Little Women because I loved but, it. Well, but there's also the stupid thing that some people have said that guys don't want to see that movie and that's going to hurt its Oscar chances. That guys yeah. just are, I don't care about seeing that. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Like it's okay. I, I would I got, definitely I to... say that I was more interested in seeing and probably liked Little Women more than the average man. That's not a a going too far out on the uh, the whatever you hell you call it for me to say that. <laughs> well, I mean, I just you know, I think you know. Do you agree with me that like women should be clamoring to see the Irishman and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? And men should be clamoring to see Little Women. Yes. And it's a great uh, movie. yeah, Once it's upon like, a time or a beautiful day in the neighborhood, the farewell. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's like uh, uh, um, a portrait of a lady, portrait of a lady on fire. Like, yeah. like you should, you know, like well, a that's black. Why man. I think like some women don't like movies like a Charlie's Angels, which is like. You know, single by Ariana Grande, come support women in this women movie. That's obviously not a great movie, but you know, you're a woman, go see it. They deserve more movies like Little Women in the Farewell, which are like great movies made by really great women filmmakers. Yeah, it's like black lesbians should go see The Mule, and like <laughs> eighty-year-old white straight guys should see Tangerine. Go to- Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Like I completely think they should. Like everyone, not that everyone should see every movie, but if they're good movies, you go see it. You go. No, see and that that's movie. sort of the point of the medium is to expose people to points of view and experiences of the world that you would not be, you know, privileged to seeing in your average normal everyday life, which is why movies like Hidden Life and Uncut Gems and Marriage Story are very important and worth seeing. 
But yeah. I will probably be back next week with Oscar nomination reactions. Maybe Little Women review. Probably 1917 yeah. review. I'm going to see that on Thursday. Are you planning on seeing that uh, this weekend? Yeah, I, I watched Road to Perdition last night, and I plan on watching Jarhead, which I will have seen all of Sam Mendes' films then. I only have Jarhead left, which is his other war film. But uh, I really hope that you'll go see Cats because we got to talk about. You got to at least let me talk about Cats next time because I really it's it it needs to be talked about. I think you should I'll go see it. it. <laughs> I think I probably yeah. will. Well, there have been I, – I don't do drugs, but there are people that have taken drugs and gone to see the movie. But I went to see it completely sober, so it was uh, it was definitely a well, It's experience. just something I feel like I need to make an opinion on it for myself because a lot of people say they hate it. But a very well-respected historian, one of my favorite authors, Tom Holland, said that he actually really liked it. So maybe I'm going to like it too. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, is this a joke? You're saying the kid who plays Spider-Man? No, no, no. He has the same name. That's sort of... And, a... and the guy who directed Child's Play. They all, There's three different Tom Hollands. The Tom Holland that I'm thinking of is the only Tom Holland that I will uh, clarify as being the real Tom Holland. The Spider-Man and the other one you mentioned can kick rocks. The Tom Holland who wrote... <laughs> Greek Fire is the only Tom Holland. He, he liked, liked it. Cats. Well, yeah, oh, because well, you not being a literary person may not oh. know the background <laughs> of it being a T.S. Eliot play or po- set of poems that the original Broadway show are based on. So I'm just interested in seeing how the T.S. Eliot elements end up manifesting themselves in this adaptation. <laughs> it's such a piece of shit. Okay. <laughs> But, uh, That's a good note to leave on. Yeah. Uh, hope uh, I guess cats not recommended. I think all Definitely the other ones <laughs> support a, support a hidden life in theaters. If it's playing near you, it's yes. not playing in a ton of theaters. Go see hidden life. Definitely go see uncut gems, which is playing everywhere. It's crazy that who would have thought that uncut gems? It's doing better at the box office than cats. I know that saying. is crazy. Cats is gonna lose like a hundred million dollars. <laughs> I know they like took it off the for your consideration. Or like in the like, this shows you how bad it is. The Golden Globes only nominated it for best song. Like that's the type of movie that like it could be like the biggest piece of shit ever if it's a musical. Like it always gets nominated well, for simply Golden because Globes. there are so few musicals. I know. Yeah. Well, it's really weird with the categories. We don't need to ramble about this, but like Renee Zellweger won for best actress in a drama, right? Yeah. 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 Now, Just why, like how Rami Malek did for Freddie Mercury last year. I know, year. but, but did, haven't, there, haven't there been years where like uh, Reese Witherspoon wins Best Actress for Walk the Line? Which is like, that's yes. the same thing. It's a musical. That's exactly or... what I was going to say, is the Walk the yeah. Line definitely got musical nominations for uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, it's Joaquin. Joaquin. What like am I saying? Joaquin? Yeah, it's, it's like walking. I think I'm trying to say it with a little bit of a Spanish flair, which might not be necessary. Yeah, but yeah, he's. I, it's one of those things too, where like he's probably going to win Best Actor, and I think. Yeah, as you say that, part, an like, ad for Joker coming out on Blu-ray comes on my TV screen. Well, I was going to say that like he's one of. I would say he's like one of the ten best actors of his generation, but like I hate Joker so much, and I don't want him to win for that. I'd be happy for Walking Phoenix to be an Oscar winner, but you know. No, it seems to be a, a, mo- a movie a lot of other actors really like. It's a very, like, actor appreciating an actor giving it all sort of performance, which is why it's probably going to win. And it irritates me, too, that I, so, I, Todd Phillips said in an interview that he doesn't think that the fact that it's in the Batman universe really affected the box office that much. No. I saw that someone uh, tweeted It made, like, a billion dollars. 
I know, I know, but uh, <laughs> you, no you were never. Well, the film you were never really here only grows seven million dollars. Like yeah. it makes a difference. Like no, it it's most definitely that does. Yeah. It being called no Joker was... is like fifty percent of the reason it made the money it did. Like if the Safdie brothers had directed, like it's pretty much made the exact film, but it had no connection to Batman. Yeah, if it was like, just called like Arthur, right? It would have made no money, and like <laughs> yeah. it would have gotten great reviews. And be like, oh, I, that was weird. What a weird I really movie. Did, I, I mean, I don't know how much of it is my resistance to comic book movies. I really wonder if they had made the same movie, very similar in many, many ways, but it just had no connection to Batman. How much my opinion would have changed? I but think you would have liked it more. <laughs> Yeah, but the, the but that's the thing of like, that's the movie it is though. And well, oh, and just... the the Batman well, we we just starting to talk about Joker now. But the Batman elements crammed into it were like the weirdest parts, like how he went to go visit the Wayne Manor and like sees young Batman. I was like, why did we need that scene? Yeah, I just I, I yeah I I just have a bad feeling Joker is gonna like I just it will really be disgusting if like Joker and Jojo Rabbit. Like get a bunch of nominations. Like I, I just think that I don't think Jojo Rabbit's going to get nominated for anything except like supporting actor. No, God, I hope not. They got the DGA nomination. I know, and they were saying that like how many recent years have the person you know been one of the nominees wins best director? I just, I, I don't know. It's just I, I, a lot of the things that are going to get a lot of Oscar nominations I like this year, like Irishman, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, Parasite. Even though Parasite wasn't one of like. Have you ever have you ever had a director where you really like their movies and then their newest one comes out and it gets like all like he finally gets Oscar acclaim and gets a bunch of nominations but it's not your like very very favorite of theirs that's how I feel about Parasite like it's a really really good movie but like I like the host and mother even more and yeah. like I it, like I I'll be happy for him to get a bunch of nominations but it's like personally not in my top ten of last year it, it, it's like the same with Guillermo del Toro I adore him he's one of my yes. favorite directors but like but Shape, Shape of Water is not the, the Guillermo del Toro one yeah. wonderful movie but it's like, I, like well, it's not Pan's Labyrinth yeah no, yeah anyway we're rambling but we'll, we'll talk about Cats and Little Women <laughs> and yeah get yeah. excited Oscar nominations come out next Monday it's for me the nominations coming out is almost more exciting than the event itself so. yeah I, I I've always like uh, gotten up early and watched them. I, I do that all the time. I didn't even watch the Golden Globes. It's Globe always campaign. so weird, too. It's like Toby Maguire and Eva Mendes <laughs> telling you the nominations. It's like the most I, random people. I remember one year they had uh, Salma Hayek. It, what they often do, too, is they'll have like Salma Hayek or Jennifer Lawrence and this like 85 year old <laughs> white guy who's like the head of the academy. Yeah. And like, but I loved the one the year that Selma Hayek was announcing the nominees and uh, the old white guy next to her uh, was doing best actress and Penelope Cruz got nominated for Volver and she went, yes, <laughs> like she went like that. Yes. Like that. Well, you're not supposed to react really, I guess. But uh, I always like it to hear the, Ooh, and like when people are unexpectedly nominated or people are snubbed and like the year that Ben Affleck and Catherine Bigelow weren't nominated. Anyway, we'll see what happens. Yes, yes. Great TV. Very exciting times in Who the film host? world. Who should host? I, oh. I always say the Muppets should host. The Muppets should host the Oscars. <laughs> the fuck that would be, like, get no Terrence one... Malick to do it. <laughs> you're, you're just, you're, I, I would really like to... I was trying to... I don't know. Who would be Who would be a good host that's never done it? I mean, uh, there's people that are always good. Like I don't know. Steve Martin. Kevin Garnett well, well, and Adam Sandler. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know. I I I think it would be a lot of fun to do the Muppets because like they're not going to say something homophobic or like have. Well, it would have to be like Jason Segel and the Muppets or something like that. Yeah. Oh, okay. One last thing. I've heard rumors that you know every Oscar there's always like dirt that comes up. Like yes. I've heard the thing that could hurt Quentin Tarantino is like some of his stuff that like him. Um, what happened with him and Uma Thurman? Oh and, yes. Like, yeah. I, I wonder if. Yeah, I wonder if that's, like, they're going to bring up dirt on him and, like, it's going to hurt his chances or, I don't know. Or, like, what if Charlize Theron comes out and says, Marty Scorsese was the one who was groping me? You know, I don't think that's going to happen. I'll tell you off, Mike. Change things. All right. Well, thank you for listening. We will probably be back uh, much sooner than the gap between the last episodes. Thank you for listening. Bye. Let the music